Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. 2023 marks the third anniversary of the federal holiday, Juneteenth. The day in 1865 when enslaved people learned that slavery was over. In Texas, the Union Army came to Galveston and Major General Gordon Granger issued Order Number 3, declaring that the former enslaved people would now be in a state of absolute equality with whites. The order, though, does not capture the cultural or legal events that took place before, nor does it answer what happened after. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed wants to teach the country why Juneteenth is a necessary complement to Independence Day celebrations. In On Juneteenth, released in 2021, she weaves together personal experience growing up in a multi-generational family in the heart of Central Texas, alongside the legal and social dynamics that shaped her. From the schools she was allowed to attend to painful traumas that exposed the vulnerability of being a Black American living in an unequal society. In 150 pages, she makes accessible a powerful story that brings into focus complicated ways social, legal, and cultural forces resist change. But getting personal was not exactly comfortable for Reed. Memoir is not her favorite genre, she explains. This is not typically what I do. I'm more detached in my other writings of history. I'm outside of the story in a way. I might talk about myself in the introduction, but once I get into the story, to the history, I I move away from it as much as I can. But I also thought that this would be a way of reaching a larger audience to talk not just to adults, but I really want this to be the kind of book that teenagers, young people could pick up and perhaps identify with a narrator who is being open about herself and her, her life and how, you know, to some degree, we're all a part of history. We could all tell the histories of our times by talking about things that happened in our lives. And so I wanted it to be accessible to lots of people. And I know memoir, I have to confess, has not been, you know, one of my favorite genres. <laughs> uh, but I, <laughs> yet here we are. Yeah, but here we are. Exactly. And I, I try to deal with some of the problems I have with the form by talking about myself as little as possible. I mean, I mentioned my mother and father's names and a handful of other people, but I thought that the more I went into like a family genealogy and family tree and talking to everybody, then it would become more memoir than history. And I wanted a particular balance. And I thought that by being present, but not too present uh, would help me maintain that, that balance between Mm. memoir and actual history. As a historian, do you feel that there's a pressure to remove the potential subjectivity that a person brings when they identify with the subject that they're teaching or talking about? Well, yeah, I think we can't be totally objective. We, we all know you can't have total objectivity, but you should not be sub- substituting your desires and your wishes Um and placing them on the people you're writing about, mm-hmm. on the circumstances you're writing about. Yeah, so th- that's definitely there. When you're writing 
a memoir and you, you, the parts that are about you, these are my impressions, you know, and they can't be wrong in that sense. I mean, I can be wrong about factual things, but when I'm talking about my feelings, you know, how my experiences, how they affected me, there's, there's some freedom in that too, that you don't have to endnote that. As a professor, as a woman, as an African-American, do you find history presented as objective that in fact is more subjective or selective in the narratives that are included? Well, yes, uh, I, I have seen that. That's what my first book really is about. Mm. Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and American Controversy. It was going through and seeing the way historians who were writing about the story of Jefferson and Hemings had preferences about the answer to that question, whether or not they had children. And it led them to ignore evidence, to accept evidence that was less than supportable coming into the matter when you're dealing with a topic that was very touchy for people and meant a lot to folks. I mean, that's why history is an art. It's not a science. There's no magic formula. And sometimes you, you hit the right balance and sometimes you tip over, but it's the, it's the attempt and the good faith attempt that I think that people, people respond to. When you encounter someone who says, explain Texas to me, (laughs) what do you say? Well, what I think it's really important for people to understand is that Texas is part of the Southwest, and the emphasis has been on the Western part of it. When you think of Texas, you think of cowboys. I did a language study program in France when I was in college. I lived with a family And they knew I was from Texas and they had an understanding about what Texas was about. It was about the desert in a way. It was about, you know, cattle. And I think that that's the kind of predominant image that people have of the place. When in fact, the Southern part of Texas is incredibly important to the formation of the state and to the culture of the state today. Texas was a slave society. Stephen F. Austin, from the very beginning, understood that slavery was going to be critical to the enterprise because the people he was bringing over from Georgia, Alabama, and the other states came with the expectation that their property rights in enslaved people would be protected. And Austin says If people came to Texas without the institution of slavery, they could expect to be poor for a very long time because, you know, it was backbreaking work in felling trees and turning East Texas into a part of the cotton empire, which is what they wanted to do. So most people, as a matter of fact, have lived in the eastern part of Texas, which is The Old South is very much like the Old South. And so I would tell people that a lot of the things that are coming out of Texas, these are racial questions that grow out of the racial hierarchy that was created by the institution of slavery. And that continued even after slavery was ended, even after Juneteenth, 1865, when slavery uh, ended in Texas, the question of Black citizenship and Black voting was controversial among many whites. 
and has been something that has that they've been fighting uh, since that time period. And it's interesting that here we are dealing with the same kind of issues. Once you understand that this is not about cowboys and oil men, as exemplified in the movie Giant, which I'm sure many people have heard of if they haven't seen, tells a narrative about the, in the beginning, Texas was a place of the cattle rancher and cattlemen and cowboys. And then uh, they were challenged by the oil men, the people who struck oil. And then the two of them come together when oil is discovered on the land of the cattle ranchers. So they become one society, but they leave out the plantation owner. A land of infinite variety and violent contrasts. A land where today's ranch hand can become tomorrow's multimillionaire. They leave out the kind of people who came over with Stephen F. Austin and created Texas as part of a cotton empire, growing cotton and sugarcane and other crops. My ancestors on both sides of my family were brought from other parts of the Deep South into Texas. My mother's family on one side I can trace back to the 1820s in Texas before Texas is a republic and certainly before it becomes a state. And my father's side, at least the 1860s, and their ancestors came from these other deep southern places uh, to, you know, recreate the slave society there. It's really important for people to understand that because you understand the racial mores and the political life of the place. When you look at the events around Juneteenth celebration, do you feel like they told a full story of what Juneteenth means and and what happens even after you have a legal proclamation? Mm -hmm. Well, I think... Black Texans understand this very well because we have been celebrating this holiday since 1866. The first anniversary after 1865, you know, kicked off these celebrations that have gone on and on. And they, they're typically, when you have them in public places, there are speeches that are given, there's music and so forth. There's an educational component to it. And I think Black Texans understand that even though there was great joy at hearing the news that enslaved people would no longer be in slavery, would never be treated as property in the way they were before. They knew they were in for a struggle. (laughs) They were amidst a group of people who were still very hostile to them and were hostile to the idea of incorporating them into the society on an equal basis. I've used the phrase hope amid hostility, that just because chattel slavery ended, it did not end the racial hierarchy. The culture of the place, the culture of of education, of voting, of social life, all of those kinds of things were still geared towards maintaining this hierarchy. And it's been a fight ever since then. So it was it's a hopeful story in a lots of ways, but I'm hoping that people will, as the years go on, have more of an opportunity to reflect on the ways in which 
it was still going to be an amazing struggle even after the end of slavery. There are growing efforts to update social studies and U.S. history books to more accurately reflect the events that surrounded chattel slavery, Reconstruction, and the era of Jim and Jane Crow in the United States. And that's been accompanied by a growing number of attacks specifically on social studies and U.S. history teachers. How do you respond? Well, you know, I think there's a lot There's a lot going on with this. There's a concern that when you talk about what actually happened, that young people will feel bad about it. (laughs) And, you know, they should. (laughs) You know, it's impossible to read stories about people who had their families taken from them. You know, mothers separated from children and husbands separated from wives. It It was a tragic situation, but it happened. And you have to talk about what happened in the past. History is not just the fun things that happened or the good things that happened. And that has to be put forth. So I think that there's a concern about a notion that this will make people unpatriotic. The feelings of white children are, you know, a paramount here saying that, you know, we don't want them to feel bad about things that their great great grandparents may have done. Well, you know, I I don't know what to say about that because those things happened (laughs) and you have to talk about them. And it's pretty much saying as well that the feelings of black children don't matter. Mm. So that if you're a black child and you know that your ancestors were enslaved, you're not supposed to talk about that because you will make your white classmates feel bad. Um, That's that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, that doesn't that doesn't make sense. If, if things happen, you have to talk about them, talk about them in an age appropriate way. I mean, as we do everything, the way we present matters to children, but they have to be discussed. There are people who don't believe or suggest that the situation that African-Americans are in, the sort of inequality that exists, that this is all our own making. And if you talk about the past and you talk about the ways in which society organized to stop blacks from advancing, it supports the idea that, you know, we've been up against it, that we've been fighting against. It's not a level playing field. Where does religion come into the story? Well, um, I suppose it comes into the story among African-Americans because many Black people, most Black people have used religion as a coping mechanism for them during slavery and after slavery as a way of maintaining a sense of faith that things would get better. So I think people in the, in the Black community, many of them have been buoyed by their religious beliefs uh, from the very, very beginning. And certainly religious figures have been more traditionally the leaders in African-American communities. You describe Texas as a promised land to Stephen Austin using almost biblical language. And I'm struck by how the language of liberation and freedom was understood by two different communities in very different ways. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there there was a black church and there was a white church. And in the white church, it was Eventually, uh, it wasn't always this way, but certainly the pro-slavery ideology in the South was very much tied to uh, religion. I, I remember going through a diary of one of Thomas Jefferson's grandsons who's 
going through the Bible and finding references to slavery as a way of justifying the existence of, uh, of the institution of slavery. Now, that's something Jefferson would never, never have done uh, in that generation of people. But certainly by the, the time that we're talking about with Juneteenth, these people are the heirs of the Second Great Awakening. And in the South, that tied very much into pro-slavery ideology. And of course, in the North, they went the opposite way. White abolitionists saw in Christianity uh, a call for abolition, the liberation of African-American people. So a lot of it seems to be people using religion as, as it happens to suit their, their particular, maybe earthly <laughs> desires, uh, uh, answers to things, uh, using religion to, to buttress their views about stuff. So all these people are claiming from the same Bible um, claiming answers about the the nature of or the the rightness or wrongness of slavery and coming to different conclusions about it. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard. She's an award-winning author of several books, including The Hemings of Monticello, An American Family, for which she earned a Pulitzer Prize in History and the National Book Award. She is also the past president of the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic. She is the current president of the Ames Foundation and, over her career, has received many honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in the Humanities, a MacArthur Fellowship, the National Humanities Medal, and the National Book Award. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in finding out more about our guests, head over to this week's episode page at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also sign up for the newsletter and explore the archives. Take us on the go. Find our podcast wherever you listen. Just search Interfaith Voices in the podcatcher of your choice. And while you're there, help us out, leave a review and a rating. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kimberly Winston, Kevin McCarthy, and myself. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.